0: It's uh, lovely to be together like this. What do we know so far from Isaiah chapter 9 as you turn to it for a moment, please? What do we know so far? We know about one who was to come and the government will be upon his shoulder. He'll be born as a child. We know that he's going to be a mighty God. We know that he is going to be a wonderful counselor. So his government will lack no wisdom and his government will lack no power because alongside that wisdom and that might there is going to be something incessantly tender and that's the thing that we're going to turn to briefly this evening this title everlasting father and I think it's the most unusual of the four titles it's a slightly confusing fourth title um as Isaiah prophetically speaks of this child who was to be born. When Jonathan had the children running about this morning looking to pick up titles of the Lord Jesus, I was kind of hoping that this one might be among them and he might pick up the card that said, Everlasting Father, I'm going to give you two minutes on that, then I could have had a sleep this afternoon. But that, that didn't happen. So let's think about this amazing title this evening. What do we mean when, or what does Isaiah mean, what are we to understand from the Bible when we hear applied to Jesus this title, Everlasting Father? Every Bible-believing Christian knows that our God is one, but he is in th- He is three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And one of the most helpful truths about what we call the doctrine of the Trinity The word doesn't appear in the Bible. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible. But one of the most helpful things that we can draw from the Bible about this doctrine of the Trinity is that when we're speaking of God the Father, he is neither the Son nor the Spirit. And when we're speaking of God the Son, he is neither the Father nor the Spirit. And when we're speaking about the Spirit, he is neither the Father nor the Son. So there is a unity in the Godhead, but there are distinctives in the persons of the Godhead. And yet here we have the promise of a child to be born, a son to be given, whose kingdom will never end, and one of the titles he is to fulfill is that of everlasting father. Well, I've got four things to draw your attention to this evening that I hope might bring some clarification. Number one, there is no competition here. No competition here. By that I mean that there is no sense in which this title points to God the Son taking over from God the Father. Rather, Jesus fulfills this title as He, as we'll see, fathers his people back into a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. I wonder, do you remember how early in our series in 1 Peter this autumn we read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus delights to be known as the son of the father. He delights to glorify his father. He delights to relate to God as father. And God, our heavenly father, obviously delights to be identified with Jesus as his beloved son and with whom he is well pleased. So as the Father and the Son relate to each other, there is no competition. That's the first simple thing for us to look at here and understand this evening. There are not two heavenly fathers now to whom we pray. In no way are we to think of the Lord Jesus moving into the territory that belongs uniquely to God the Father. But as the Lord Jesus relates to us, those whom he came to save and reconcile to God, as we will see, he nonetheless plays an essential fatherly role in our salvation. That's the first thing. There's no competition here. Second thing, there's no confusion here. That might be a bit, a bit of an exaggeration in terms of my exposition, but we'll see how we get on. In the Bible, there's no confusion here. We were thinking a little about this uh, about this on uh, Wednesday night at the prayer meeting from John chapter 14. Do you remember when Philip said, To Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that would be enough for us. Now, if there had been a sense in which Jesus saw himself as the Father, if there had been a sense of that in the way that God is the Father, here was the opportunity for the Lord Jesus to say so. He could have said, show us the Father. I'm the Father. I'm the everlasting Father. Isaiah even said it. That didn't happen. Very significantly, he did say this. Have I been with you so long? Still do you not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, we're not talking here about physically physically recognizable features, but rather the Lord Jesus is saying, if you want to know what my Father is like, if, if you want to know what he is like in his character and his personality, what he stands for, then we look at the Lord Jesus. We look at God the Son and we see him there. And Jesus goes on to justify this statement by upholding the individuality of the Father and the Son alongside their unity and cooperation. He says, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. So he's not saying When he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's not saying, we're just kind of the same person and, and, you know, there's no distinction between us. He's actually, he's talking about this remarkable interrelationship they have, the perfection of their unity. And yet he is making it crystal clear that he says, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. So there's no confusion as though these all merge into one. In other words, it was bizarre when Philip said, show us the Father and it is enough for us. As though Philip was asking the Lord Jesus to do something new, as if this was something that hadn't occurred to the Lord Jesus up until this point. The whole reason he came was to show us the Father. As Colossians 1.15 tells us, he is the image of the invisible God. Everything had been done in these years to make the Father known. So there's no competition, there's no confusion between God the Father and God the Son. Thirdly, there is no negative association here. I say that because our relationship with our fathers can be complicated. And we may not always have had the kind of relationship with our fathers that we would have hoped for. Many of us have been richly blessed by the relationship we've had with our dads. But equally, many of us have been let down, perhaps even significantly harmed by our fathers. And therefore, when I talk tonight about the Lord Jesus as our everlasting father, or even talk about God as our heavenly father, I'm not assuming that the word father always lands comfortably on our hearts and minds. I quote our brother Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, At Christmas time, it may be especially important for some of us to grasp this. We traditionally think of Christmas as a family time, but by no means do all of us have good memories of Christmas at home or of family life or of our father. But in Christ, we find a new father, A true father. What is more, an everlasting father. He will never cease to be that to us. And therefore, if father is a term that gives us little pleasure, we look to Jesus in order to dissipate all unhappy thoughts of fatherhood. And we keep looking to Jesus. And we keep pressing in on him until we've absorbed the constancy of the love of Jesus in whom the love of the Father for us is seen. Ferguson says, in coming to him, we discover for the first time in our lives that we are really loved. So by way of clearing the ground, there is no competition here. There is no confusion here. There's no negative association here. But lastly, there is no exaggeration here. So far, we've just tried to clarify negatively what we don't mean by everlasting father. It's important to clear misunderstandings away, but positively, what does it mean for the Lord Jesus to be our everlasting father? Well, it has to do with how he relates to us. And in particular, I think it has to do with how the Lord Jesus saw himself in relation to to those for whom he would come and give his life. And I want to try and justify that comment from an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. And this is very striking to see his eternal and enduring fatherly love, a love that reconciles us to God, our Heavenly Father. Now listen to these verses from Isaiah chapter 53. You know Isaiah, I'm sure many of you know Isaiah 53 very well. A passage that just speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord, the one who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom mine hide their faces. Isaiah says he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way. The Lord has laid on him... The iniquity of us all. And then listen to this tenth verse. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall see his offspring. Now the Lord Jesus never married he never had any physical offspring. So Isaiah says in chapter 9 that one of the titles he will fulfill is the title of everlasting father. And Isaiah says in chapter 53 he speaks prophetically about the fatherly power and the fatherly position of this servant of the Lord who will come And who will suffer. And Isaiah helps us to see that as believers tonight, we are part of that offspring that the Lord Jesus saw in the midst of his suffering. Verse 11 of Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, so that's the context of verse 10, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. That means his knowledge, his experience of moral perfection, his knowledge of complete sinlessness in the face of every temptation under which we buckle. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge he shall take it, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Elijah, sorry, Isaiah speaks of one to come, the Lord's servant, who will suffer abysmally, and humanly speaking, he will suffer in a way that is completely unjust. But in so doing, he will fulfill the express will and purposes of Almighty God. It was the will of God to crush him and to put him to grief. And Isaiah is given to see that even in the midst of that dreadful suffering of the Lord's servant, whom we now see as the Lord Jesus himself, even though he will be crushed and grieved and his soul was made an offering for guilt, not his own guilt, but the guilt of those he bore, in the midst of that anguish, in the midst of that experience, Isaiah saw, 750 years before his birth, what he would experience in his death. That on that day of the most appalling anguish that we're going to remember now as we come to the table, the Lord himself, Jesus, as he took the appalling weight of our sin upon himself, would look ahead and see, Isaiah 53 verse 10, his offspring, he would see the result of his suffering, and it would be new births. It would be new lives. And it would be lives that are going to last for eternity. And even in the midst of his unimaginable, inexpressible suffering, his soul, would be satisfied. He would make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities, said Isaiah. And so in that sense, those who have come to put their trust in the Lord Jesus and what he did in fulfillment of Isaiah on the cross, we are now the offspring that Jesus saw in the midst of his terrible torment. Because he bore our sin and our guilt. Because he gave us the gift of his perfection. That's what Isaiah meant by, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. By his knowledge of how to live life and please God. That's a knowledge I don't have. It's a knowledge you don't have. But by his knowledge of that, he gives that gift to us so that many who trust in him, whose sin he bears, are accounted righteous. It's a wonderful picture of justification. The knowledge of that promise as he looked ahead at his vast offspring deeply satisfied his soul as he suffered, as he was rejected, as he was crucified, executed for us. So Isaiah told us in advance that the Lord Jesus would see ahead to the fruit of his suffering and the Lord Jesus would be so satisfied to endure it that there might be eternal offspring. Let me give you one final example of what this role meant to the Lord Jesus and this time from the New Testament, from the very John 14 that I mentioned a few moments ago. I'm just going to give you the verse in isolation. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus was preparing his disciples for what was about to happen. Uh, He was about to leave them and go back to glory, and he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit. He said in verse 18 of John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. Now, that is a fascinating way that Jesus perceived his followers, were he to leave them to fend for themselves. He uses the word orphans. An orphan is one who is left without parent, without father. And here is the Lord Jesus in John 14, letting us into how he thinks about his followers. And the way he loves us, the way he tends for us, the way he cares for us, the way he provides for us. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He speaks from the perspective of a loving father to his offspring, an everlasting father. And wasn't it lovely as Naomi introduced that carol earlier on to be reminded from John chapter 15 verse 9. I just jotted it down because it hadn't occurred to me until I heard it tonight. How Jesus said, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now that does not just mean My Father loves me hugely, and I love you hugely. It means more than that. It means in the way that He fathers me in love. I father you in love. And this is part of the gift of our Savior, the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And as we'll see, God willing, on Sunday morning, the Prince of Peace. Let's take a few moments in the quietness. I'm going to come down to the table. Bruce and Chris are going to join us there. But let's just take a few moments in the quietness to think about these things as we come to break bread together this evening.